I remember vividly an experience I had as a small boy. One day, while playing with my friends, I accidentally broke a window in a store near our home. As the glass shattered and the security alarm blared, a paralyzing fear filled my heart and mind. I realized immediately I was doomed to spend the remainder of my life in prison. <laughs> my parents eventually coaxed me out from a hiding place under my bed and helped me to make amends with the store owner. Fortunately, my jail sentence was commuted. The fear I felt that day was overwhelming and real. You undoubtedly have experienced much greater feelings of dread after learning about a personal health challenge, discovering a family member in difficulty or danger, or observing disturbing world events. In such instances, the distressing emotion of fear arises because of impending danger, uncertainty, or pain, and through experiences that are unexpected, sometimes sudden, and likely to produce a negative outcome. In our daily lives, endless reports of criminal violence, famine, wars, corruption, terrorism, declining values, disease, and the destructive forces of nature can engender fear and apprehension. Surely we live in the season foretold by the Lord, and in that day the whole earth shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them. My purpose is to describe how fear is dispelled through a correct knowledge of and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I earnestly pray the Holy Ghost will bless each of us as we consider together this important topic. Upon hearing the voice of God after partaking of the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve hid themselves in the Garden of Eden. God called unto Adam and asked, Where art thou? And Adam answered, I heard thy voice, and I was afraid. Notably, one of the first effects of the fall was for Adam and Eve to experience fear. This potent emotion is an important element of our mortal existence. An example from the Book of Mormon highlights the power of the knowledge of the Lord to dispel fear and provide peace even as we confront great adversity. In the land of Helam, Alma's people were frightened by an advancing Lamanite army. But Alma went forth and stood among them and exhorted them that they should not be frightened, but should remember the Lord their God, and He would deliver them. Therefore they hushed their fears. Notice Alma did not hush the people's fears. Rather, Alma counseled the believers to remember the Lord and the deliverance only He could bestow. And knowledge of the Savior's protecting watch care enabled the people to hush their own fears. Correct knowledge of and faith in the Lord empower us to hush our fears because Jesus Christ is the only source of enduring peace. He declared, Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. The Master also explained, He who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. 
Trust and confidence in Christ and a ready reliance on His merits, mercy, and grace lead to hope through His atonement in the resurrection and eternal life. Such faith and hope invite into our lives the sweet peace of conscience for which we all yearn. The power of the Atonement makes repentance possible and quells the despair caused by sin. It also strengthens us to see, do, and become good in ways that we could never recognize or accomplish with our limited moral capacity. Truly, one of the great blessings of devoted discipleship is the peace of God which passeth all understanding. The peace Christ gives allows us to view mortality through the precious perspective of eternity and supplies a spiritual settledness that helps us maintain a consistent focus on our heavenly destination. Thus, we can be blessed to hush our fears because His doctrine provides purpose and direction in all aspects of our lives. His ordinances and covenants fortify and comfort in times both good and bad. And His priesthood authority gives assurance that the things that matter most can endure both in time and in eternity. But can we hush the fears that so easily and frequently beset us in our contemporary world? The answer to this question is an unequivocal yes. Three basic principles are central to receiving this blessing in our lives. First, look to Christ. Second, build upon the foundation of Christ. And third, press forward with faith in Christ. First, look to Christ. The counsel Alma gave to his son Helaman applies precisely to each of us today. Yea, see that ye look to God and live. We should look to and have our focus firmly fixed upon the Savior at all times and in all places. Recall how the Lord's apostles were in a ship tossed in the midst of the sea. Jesus went to them walking on the water, but not recognizing him, they cried out in fear. Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. Peter then walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, began to sink, and cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now I envision Peter responding fervently and immediately to the Savior's invitation. With his eyes fixed upon Jesus, he stepped out of the boat and miraculously walked on the water. Only when his gaze was diverted by the wind and the waves did he become afraid and begin to sink. We can be blessed to conquer our fears and strengthen our faith as we follow the Lord's instruction, Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. Second, build upon the foundation of Christ. Helaman admonished his sons Nephi and Lehi. 
Remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. For when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. Because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon, if men build, they cannot fall. Brothers and sisters, ordinances and covenants are the building blocks we use to construct our lives upon the foundation of Christ and His Atonement. We are connected securely to and with the Savior as we worthily receive ordinances and enter into covenants, faithfully remember and honor those sacred commitments, and then do our best to live in accordance with the obligations we have accepted. And that bond is the source of spiritual strength and stability in all of the seasons of our lives. We can be blessed to hush our fears as we firmly establish our desires and deeds upon the sure foundation of the Savior through our ordinances and covenants. Third, press forward with faith in Christ. Nephi declared, Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. The disciplined endurance described in this verse is the result of spiritual understanding and vision persistence, patience, and God's grace. Exercising faith in and on the holy name of Jesus Christ, meekly submitting to His will and timing in our lives, and humbly acknowledging His hand in all things, yield the peaceable things of the kingdom of God that bring joy and eternal life. Even as we encounter difficulties and face the uncertainties of the future, we can cheerfully persevere and live a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We can be blessed to hush our fears as we receive the fortitude that comes from learning and living gospel principles and resolutely pressing forward on the covenant pathway. Different from but related to the fears we often experience is what the scriptures describe as godly fear or the fear of the Lord. Unlike worldly fear that creates alarm and anxiety, godly fear is a source of peace, assurance, and confidence. But how can anything associated with fear be edifying or spiritually helpful? The righteous fear I am attempting to describe encompasses a deep feeling of reverence, respect, and awe for the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to His commandments, and anticipation of the final judgment and justice at His hand. Thus, godly fear grows out of a correct understanding of the divine nature and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, a willingness to submit our will to His will, 
and a knowledge that every man and woman will be accountable for his or her own sins in the day of judgment. As the scriptures certify, godly fear is the beginning of knowledge, the instruction of wisdom, a strong confidence, and a fountain of life. Please note that godly fear is linked inextricably to an understanding of the final judgment and our individual accountability for our desires, thoughts, words, and acts. The fear of the Lord is not a reluctant apprehension about coming into His presence to be judged. I do not believe we will be afraid of Him at all. Rather, it is the prospect in His presence of facing things as they really are about ourselves and having a perfect knowledge of all our rationalizations, pretenses, and self-deceptions. Ultimately, we will be left without excuse. Every person who has lived or will yet live upon the earth shall be brought to stand before the bar of God to be judged of Him according to His or her works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. If our desires have been for righteousness and our works good, then the judgment bar will be pleasing. And at the last day, we will be rewarded unto righteousness. Conversely, if our desires have been for evil and our works wicked, then the judgment bar will be a cause of dread. We shall not dare to look up to our God, and we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from His presence. And at the last day, we will have our reward of evil. As summarized in Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. My beloved brothers and sisters, godly fear dispels mortal fears. It even subdues the haunting concern that we can never be good enough spiritually and never will measure up to the Lord's requirements and expectations. In truth, we cannot be good enough or measure up, relying solely upon our own capacity and performance. Our works and desires alone do not and cannot save us. After all we can do, we are made whole only through the mercy and grace available through the Savior's infinite and eternal atoning sacrifice. Certainly we believe that through the Atonement of Christ all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Godly fear is loving and trusting in Him. As we fear God more completely, we love Him more perfectly, and perfect love casteth out all fear. I promise the bright light of godly fear will chase away the dark shadows of mortal fears as we look to the Savior, build upon Him as our foundation, and press forward on His covenant path with consecrated commitment. I love and revere the Lord. His power and peace are real. 
He is our Redeemer and eyewitness. He lives. And because of Him, our hearts need not be troubled or afraid, and we will be blessed to hush our fears. I so testify in the sacred and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In this Easter season, we reflect upon and rejoice in the redemption provided by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The clamor that reverberates across the earth because of worldly wickedness creates feelings of vulnerability. With modern communication, the impact of iniquity, inequality, and injustice leave many feeling that life is inherently unfair. As significant as these trials can be, they must not distract us from rejoicing in and celebrating Christ's supernal intercession in our behalf. The Savior literally gained the victory over death. With mercy and compassion, He took upon Himself our iniquity and transgressions, thus redeeming us and satisfying the demands of justice for all who would repent and believe on His name. His magnificent atoning sacrifice is of transcendent significance beyond mortal comprehension. This act of grace provides the peace that surpasses understanding. How then do we deal with the harsh realities that surround us? My wife Mary has always loved sunflowers. She rejoices when they, in quite improbable places, appear on the roadside. There is a dirt road that leads to the home where my grandparents lived. When we started down that road, Mary would often exclaim, Do you think we will see those amazing sunflowers today? We were surprised that sunflowers flourish in soil which has been impacted by farm and snow removal equipment and the accumulation of materials that would not be considered ideal soil for wildflowers to grow. One of the remarkable characteristics of young wild sunflowers, in addition to growing in soil that is not hospitable, is how the young flower bud follows the sun across the sky. In doing so, it receives the sustaining energy before bursting forth in its glorious yellow color. Like the young sunflower, when we follow the Savior of the world, the Son of God, we flourish and become glorious despite the many terrible, terrible circumstances that surround us. He truly is our light and life. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, the Savior declared to His disciples that those who offend and do iniquity shall be gathered out of His kingdom. But speaking of the faithful, He said, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. As individuals, disciples of Christ, living in a hostile world that is literally in commotion, we can thrive and bloom if we are rooted in our love of the Savior and humbly follow His teachings. 
Our ability to stand firm and true and follow the Savior despite the vicissitudes of life is greatly strengthened by righteous families and Christ-centered unity in our wards and branches. The role of the family in God's plan is to bring us happiness, to help us learn correct principles in a loving atmosphere, and to prepare us for eternal life. The beautiful traditions of religious observance in the home need to be embedded in the hearts of our children. My uncle, Vaughn Roberts Kimball, was a good student and an aspiring author and a BYU football quarterback. On December 8, 1941, the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. While on a recruiting assignment in Albany, New York, he submitted a short article to the Reader's Digest. The magazine paid him $200 and published his piece titled The Right Time at Home in the May 1944 issue. His contribution to the Reader's Digest, where he casts himself as the sailor, reads in part The Right Time at Home. One evening in Albany, New York, I asked a sailor what time it was. He pulled out a huge watch and replied, It's 7.20. I knew it was later. Your watch has stopped, hasn't it? I asked. No, he said. I'm still on Mountain Standard Time. I'm from Southern Utah. When I joined the Davy, Pa gave me this watch. He said it had helped me remember home. When my watch says 5 a.m., I know Dad is rolling out to milk the cows. And any night when it says 7.30, I know the whole family's around a well-spread table, and Dad's thanking God for what's on it and asking Him to watch over me. He concluded, I can find out what time it is where I am easy enough. What I want to know is what time it is in Utah. Soon after submitting the article, Vaughn was assigned to sea duty in the Pacific Theater. On May 11, 1945, while serving on the carrier USS Bunker Hill near Okinawa, the ship was bombed by two suicide planes. Almost 400 crewmen died, including my Uncle Vaughn. <clears throat> Elder Spencer W. Kimball extended his heartfelt sympathy to Vaughn's father, noting Vaughn's worthiness and the Lord's assurance that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. Vaughn's father tenderly said that even though Vaughn was buried at sea, the hand of God would take Vaughn to his heavenly home. Twenty-eight years later, President Spencer W. Kimball spoke of Vaughn in General Conference. He said in part, I knew this family well. I have, felt in, I have knelt in mighty prayer with them. Home teaching and home training has carried them through to the eternal blessing of this large family. President Kimball challenged every family to be on their knees praying for their sons and daughters twice daily. Brothers and sisters, if we faithfully have family prayer, scripture study, family home evening, priesthood blessings, and Sabbath day observance, our children will know what time it is at home. They will be prepared for an eternal home in heaven 
regardless of what befalls them in a difficult world. It is vitally important that our children know they are loved and safe at home. Husbands and wives are equal partners. They have different but complementary responsibility. The wife may bear children, which blesses the entire family. The husband may receive the priesthood, which blesses the entire family. But in family council, wives and husbands, as equal partners, make the most important decisions. They decide how the children will be taught and disciplined, how money will be spent, where they will live, and many other family decisions. These are made jointly after seeking guidance from the Lord. The goal is an eternal family. The light of Christ plants the eternal nature of the family in the hearts of all His children. One of my favorite writers, not of our faith, said it this way, So much in life is extraneous, but the family is the real thing, the substantial thing, the eternal thing, the thing to watch over and care for and be loyal to. In addition to the family, the role of the Church is also significant. The Church provides the organization and means for teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of God's children. It provides the priesthood authority to administer the ordinances of salvation and exaltation to all who are worthy and willing to accept them. In the world, there is rampant contention, iniquity, and a major emphasis on divergent cultures and inequality. In the Church, except for language units, our wards and branches are geographical. We don't divide by class or rank. We rejoice in the fact that all races and cultures are mixed together in a righteous congregation. Our ward family is important to our progress, happiness, and personal effort to be more Christ-like. Cultures often divide people and are sometimes a source of violence and discrimination. In the Book of Mormon, some of the most haunting language is used to describe the traditions of wicked fathers which lead to violence, war, evil deeds, iniquity, and even the destruction of peoples and nations. There is no better starting point in the scriptures than 4 Nephi for a description of the Church culture that is essential for all of us. In verse 2 it reads, in part, The people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions and disputations among them. And every man did deal justly one with another. In verse 16 we read, And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. The fact that there was no contention was attributed to the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. This is the culture to which we aspire. Deep cultural values and beliefs go to the core of who we are. Traditions of sacrifice, gratitude, faith, and righteousness are to be cherished and preserved. Families must relish and protect traditions that build faith. One of the most significant features of any culture is its language. In the San Francisco, California area where I lived, there were seven non-native language units. Our doctrine with respect to language is set forth in section 90, verse 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants. 
For it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language. When God's children pray to Him in their native language, that is the language of their heart. It is clear that the language of the heart is precious to all people. My older brother Joseph is a medical doctor and practiced for many years in the San Francisco Bay Area. An elderly Samoan church member who was a new patient came to his office. He was in severe, debilitating pain. It was determined that he had a kidney stone and appropriate treatment was undertaken. This faithful member stated that his original goal was merely to understand what was wrong so that he could pray in Samoan to his Heavenly Father about his health problem. It is important for members to understand the gospel in the language of their heart so they can pray and act in accordance with gospel principles. Even with diversity of languages and uplifting beautiful cultural traditions, we must have hearts knit in unity and love. The Lord has stated emphatically, Let every man esteem his brother as himself. Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. While we treasure appropriate cultural diversities, our goal is to be united in the culture, customs, and traditions of the gospel of Jesus Christ in every respect. We recognize that some members have questions and concerns as they seek to strengthen their faith and testimonies. We should be careful not to be critical or judgmental of those with concerns, great or small. At the same time, those with concerns should do everything they can to build their own faith and testimony. Patiently and humbly studying, pondering, praying, living gospel principles, and counseling with appropriate leaders are the best ways to resolve questions or concerns. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the Church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. The number of members removing their names from the records of the Church has always been very small and is significantly less in recent years than in the past. The increase in demonstrably measurable areas, such as endowed members with the current temple recommend, adult full tithe payers, and those serving missions, has been dramatic. Let me say again, the Church has never been stronger. But remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. We reach out to everyone. If the grim realities you are facing at this time seem dark and heavy and almost unbearable, remember that in the soul-wrenching darkness of Gethsemane and the incomprehensible torture and pain of Calvary, the Savior accomplished the Atonement which resolves the most terrible burdens that can occur in this life. He did it for you and He did it for me. And He did it because He loves us and because He obeys and loves His Father. We will be rescued from death, even from the depths of the sea. Our protections in this life and for eternity will be in individual and family righteousness, Church ordinances, and following the Savior. This is our refuge from the storm. For those who feel they are alone, you can stand resolutely in righteousness 
knowing that the Atonement will protect and bless you beyond your ability to fully understand. We should remember the Savior, keep our covenants, and follow the Son of God as the young sunflower follows the sunshine. Following His light and example will bring us joy, happiness, and peace. As Psalm 27 and a favorite hymn both proclaim, The Lord is my light and my salvation. On this Easter weekend, as one of the Savior's apostles, I bear solemn witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know He lives. I know His voice. I testify of His divinity and the reality of the Atonement. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Unfortunately, there was a time in my life when I was motivated by titles and authority. It really began innocently. As I was preparing to serve a full-time mission, my older brother was made his own leader in his mission. I heard so many positive things said about him that I couldn't help but want those things said about me. I hoped for and may have even prayed for a similar position. Thankfully, as I served my mission, I learned a powerful lesson. Last conference, I was reminded of that lesson. In October, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf said, Over the course of my life, I have had the opportunity to rub shoulders with some of the most competent and intelligent men and women this world has to offer. When I was younger, I was impressed by those who were educated, accomplished, and successful, and applauded by the world. But over the years, I have come to the realization that I am far more impressed with those wonderful and blessed souls who are truly good and without guile." My Book of Mormon Hero is a perfect example of a wonderful and blessed soul who was truly good and without guile. Shiblon was one of the sons of Alma the Younger. We are more familiar with his brothers Helaman, who would follow his father as the keeper of the records and the prophet of God, and Corianton, who gained some notoriety as a missionary who needed some counsel from his father. To Helaman, Alma wrote 77 verses. To Corianton, Alma dedicated 91 verses. To Shiblon, his middle son, Alma wrote a mere 15 verses. Yet his words in those 15 verses are powerful and instructive. And now, my son, I trust that I shall have great joy in you because of your steadiness and your faithfulness unto God. For as you have commenced in your youth to look to the Lord your God, even so I hope that you will continue in keeping His commandments. For blessed is he that endureth to the end. I say unto you, my son, that I have had great joy in thee already because of thy faithfulness and thy diligence and thy patience and thy long-suffering among the people. In addition to speaking to Shiblon, Alma also spoke about him to Corianton. Alma said, Have ye not observed the steadiness of thy brother, his faithfulness and his diligence in keeping the commandments of God? Behold, has he not set a good example for thee? It appears that Shiblon was a son who wanted to please his father and went about doing what was right for right's sake rather than for praise, position, power, accolades, or authority. Helaman must have known and respected this about his brother, for he gave Shiblon custody of the sacred records he had received from his father. Surely Helaman trusted Shiblon because he was a just man, and he did walk uprightly before God, and he did observe to do good continually to keep the commandments of the Lord his God. As seems truly characteristic of Shiblon, there is not much recorded about him from the time he took possession of the sacred records until he gave them to Helaman's son, Helaman. 
Shiblon was truly good and without guile. He was a person who sacrificed his time, talents, and effort to help and lift others because of a love for God and his fellow men. He is described perfectly by the words of President Spencer W. Kimball. Great women and men are always more anxious to serve than to have dominion. In a world where praise, position, power, accolades, and authority are sought on every side, I honor those wonderful and blessed souls who are truly good and without guile, those who are motivated by a love of God and their neighbors, those great women and men who are more anxious to serve than to have dominion. Today, there are some who would have us believe our search for relevance can be satisfied only by obtaining position and power. Yet, thankfully, there are many who are uninfluenced by this perspective. They find relevance in seeking to be truly good and without guile. I have found them in all walks of life and in many faith traditions, and I find them in large numbers among the truly converted followers of Christ. I honor those who selflessly serve each week in wards and branches around the world by going above and beyond in fulfilling callings. But callings come and go. Even more impressive to me are the many who, without formal callings, find ways to consistently serve and lift others. One brother shows up early for church to set up chairs and stays after to straighten up the chapel. One sister purposely selects a seat near a blind sister in her ward, not only so she can greet her, but so she can sing the hymns loudly enough that the blind sister can hear the words and sing along. If you look closely in your ward or branch, you will find examples like these. There are always members who seem to know who needs help and when to offer it. Perhaps my first lesson about truly good saints without guile was learned when I was a young missionary. I moved into an area with an elder I didn't know. I had heard other missionaries talk about how he had never received any leadership assignments and how he struggled with the Korean language despite having been in the country a long time. But as I got to know this elder, I found he was one of the most obedient and faithful missionaries I had known. He studied when it was time to study. He worked when it was time to work. He left the apartment on time and returned on time. He was diligent in studying Korean even though the language was especially difficult for him. When I realized the comments I'd heard were untrue, I felt like this missionary was being misjudged as unsuccessful. I wanted to tell the whole mission what I had discovered about this elder. I shared with my mission president my desire to correct this misunderstanding. His response was, Heavenly Father knows this young man is a successful missionary, and so do I. He added, And now you know, too, so who else really matters? This wise mission president taught me what was important in service, and it wasn't praise, position, power, honor, or authority. This was a great lesson for a young missionary who was too focused on titles. With this lesson in mind, I began to look back on my life and see how often I had been influenced by men and women who at the time held no great title or position. One of these Shiblon-like souls was my seminary teacher during my junior year in high school. This good man taught seminary for only two or three years, but he opened my heart in a way that helped me gain a testimony. He may not have been the most popular teacher at the school, but he was always prepared, and his influence on me was powerful and lasting. One of the few times I saw this man in the 40 years since he taught me. 
was when he came to see me at my father's funeral. Truly, that was an act not motivated by title or power. I honor that dedicated teacher, many like him, who are truly good and without guile. I honor the Sunday school teacher who doesn't teach his students just during class on Sunday, but also teaches and influences these same students by inviting them to join his family for breakfast. I honor youth leaders who attend the sporting and cultural activities of the young men and young women in their wards. I honor the man who writes notes of encouragement to neighbors and the woman who doesn't just mail Christmas cards but hand-delivers them to family members and friends who need a visit. I honor the brother who routinely took a neighbor for a ride during that neighbor's dark days of Alzheimer's, giving both him and his wife a much-needed change of pace. These things are not done for praise or accolades. These men and women are not motivated by the possibility of receiving titles or authority. They are disciples of Christ going about doing good continually. And like Shiblon, they are trying to please their Father in heaven. It saddens me when I hear of some who stop serving or even attending church because they are released from a calling or feel overlooked for a position or title. I hope they will one day learn the same lesson I learned as a young missionary, that the service that counts most is usually recognized by God alone. In our pursuit of me and mine, have we forgotten thee and thine? Some may say, but I have so far to go to become like those you describe. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the desires of our hearts can be transformed and our motives can be educated and refined. When we are baptized into the true fold of God, we begin the process of becoming new creatures. Each time we renew the covenant of baptism by partaking of the sacrament, we are one step closer to that ultimate goal. As we endure in that covenant, we access the strength to mourn with those who mourn and to comfort those who need comfort. In that covenant, we find the grace that enables us to serve God and keep His commandments, including loving God with all our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In that covenant, God and Christ succor us so we can succor those who stand in need of our succor. All I really want in life is to please my fathers, both earthly and heavenly, and to be more like Shiblon. I thank my Heavenly Father for Shiblon-like souls whose examples offer me and all of us hope. In their lives, we see a witness of a loving Father in heaven and a caring and compassionate Savior. I add my testimony to theirs with a pledge to strive to be more like them. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, in December 2013, the world mourned the death of Nelson Mandela. After 27 years of imprisonment for his role in the anti-apartheid struggle, Mandela was the first democratically elected president of South Africa. His forgiveness of those who had imprisoned him was remarkable. He received widespread acclaim and praise. Mandela frequently deflected accolades by saying, I'm no saint. That is, unless you think a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. This statement, a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying, 
should reassure and encourage members of the Church. Although we're referred to as Latter-day Saints, we sometimes flinch at this reference. The term saints is commonly used to designate those who have achieved an elevated state of holiness or even perfection. And we know perfectly well that we're not perfect. Our theology does teach us, though, that we may be perfected by repeatedly and iteratively relying wholly upon the doctrine of Christ, exercising faith in Him, repenting, partaking of the sacrament to renew the covenants and blessings of baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost as a constant companion to a greater degree. As we do so, we become more like Christ and are able to endure to the end with all that that entails. In less formal terms, God cares a lot more about who we are and about who we're becoming than about who we once were. He cares that we keep on trying. The comedy, As You Like It, written by the English playwright William Shakespeare, depicts a dramatic change in a character's life. An older brother attempts to have his younger brother killed. Even knowing this, the younger brother saves his wicked brother from certain death. When the older brother learns of this undeserved compassion, he is totally and forever changed and has what he calls a conversion. Later, several women approach the older brother and ask, Was it you that so oft contrived to kill your brother? The older brother answers, "'Twas I, but tis not I. I do not shame to tell you what I was, since my conversion so sweetly tastes being the thing I am." For us, because of God's mercy and the Atonement of Jesus Christ, such a change is not just literary fiction. Through Ezekiel, the Lord declared, As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. If he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned to him. He hath done that which is lawful and right. In his mercy, God promises forgiveness when we repent and turn from wickedness, so much so that our sins will not even be mentioned to us. For us, because of the Atonement of Christ and our repentance, we can look at our past deeds and say, "'Twas I, but tis not I." No matter how wicked, we can say, "'That's who I was, but that past wicked self is no longer who I am." President Thomas S. Monson has taught, one of God's greatest gifts to us is the joy of trying again, for no failure ever need be final. Even if we've been a conscious, deliberate sinner or have repeatedly faced failure and disappointment, 
the moment we decide to try again, the Atonement of Christ can help us. And we need to remember that it's not the Holy Ghost who tells us we're so far gone that we might as well give up. God's desire that Latter-day Saints keep on trying also extends beyond overcoming sin. Whether we suffer because of troubled relationships, economic challenges, illnesses, or as a consequence of someone else's sins, the Savior's Atonement can heal even and perhaps especially those who have innocently suffered. He understands perfectly what it's like to suffer innocently as a consequence of another's transgression. As prophesied, the Savior will bind up the brokenhearted, give beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. No matter what, with His help, God expects Latter-day Saints to keep on trying. Just as God rejoices when we persevere, He's disappointed if we don't recognize that others are trying to. Our dear friend Toba shared how she learned this lesson from her mother Julia. Julia and Toba were among the early black converts in South Africa. After the apartheid regime ended, black and white members of the Church were permitted to attend Church together. For many, the equality of interaction between the races was new and challenging. One time, as Julia and Toba attended Church, they felt they were treated less than kindly by some white members. As they left, Toba complained bitterly to her mother. Julia listened calmly until Toba had vented her frustration. Then Julia said, Oh, Toba, the Church is like a big hospital, and we're all sick in our own way. We come to Church to be helped. Julia's comment reflects a valuable insight. We must not only be tolerant while others work on their individual illnesses. We must also be kind, patient, supportive, and understanding. As God encourages us to keep on trying, He expects us to also allow others the space to do the same at their own pace. The Atonement will come into our lives in even greater measure. We will then recognize that regardless of perceived differences, all of us are in need of the same infinite Atonement. Some years ago, a wonderful young man named Curtis was called to serve a mission. He was the kind of missionary every mission president prays for. He was focused and worked hard. At one point, he was assigned a missionary companion who was immature, socially awkward, and not particularly enthusiastic about getting the work done. One day, while riding their bicycles, Curtis looked back and saw that his companion had inexplicably gotten off his bike and was walking. Silently, Curtis expressed his frustration to God. What a chore it was to be saddled with a companion he had to drag around in order to accomplish anything. Moments later, Curtis had a profound impression 
as if God were saying to him, You know, Curtis, compared to me, the two of you aren't all that different. (laughs) Curtis learned that he needed to be patient with an imperfect companion who nonetheless was trying in his own way. My invitation to all of us is to evaluate our lives, repent, and keep on trying. If we don't try, we're just Latter-day Sinners. If we don't persevere, we're Latter-day Quitters. And if we don't allow others to try, we're just Latter-day Hypocrites. As we try, persevere, and help others to do the same, we are true Latter-day Saints. As we change, we'll find that God indeed cares a lot more about who we are and about who we're becoming than about who we once were. I'm deeply grateful for the Savior, for His infinite Atonement, and for Latter-day Prophets who encourage us to be Latter-day Saints, to keep on trying. I witness of the Savior's living reality in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, thank you for that beautiful music. Years ago, I listened to a radio interview of a young doctor who worked in the hospital on on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona. He told of an experience he had one night when an old Native American man with long braided hair came into the emergency room. The young doctor took his clipboard, approached the man, and said, How can I help you? The old man looked straight ahead and said nothing. The doctor, feeling somewhat impatient, tried again. I cannot help you if you don't speak to me, he said. Tell me why you've come to the hospital. The old man looked at him and said, Do you dance? As the young doctor pondered the strange question, it occurred to him that perhaps his patient was a tribal medicine man who, according to ancient tribal customs, sought to heal the sick through song and dance rather than through prescribing medication. No, said the doctor, I don't dance. Do you dance? The old man nodded yes. Then the doctor asked, Could you teach me to dance? The old man's response has for many years caused me much reflection. I can teach you to dance, he said, but you have to hear the music. Sometimes in our homes we successfully teach the dance steps, but are not as successful in helping our family members to hear the music. And as the old medicine man well knew, it is hard to dance without music. Dancing without music is awkward and unfulfilling, even embarrassing. Have you ever tried it? In Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord taught Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. We learn the dance steps with our minds, but we hear the music with our hearts. The dance steps of the gospel are the things we do. 
The music of the gospel is the joyful spiritual feeling that comes from the Holy Ghost. It brings a change of heart and is the source of all righteous desires. The dance steps require discipline, but the joy of the dance will only be experienced when we come to hear the music. There are those who ridicule members of the Church for the things that we do. That is understandable. Those who dance often appear strange or awkward or, to use a scriptural term, peculiar to those who cannot hear the music. Have you ever stopped your car at a stoplight next to a car where the driver is dancing and singing at the top of his lungs, <laughs> but you can't hear a sound because your windows are rolled up? Didn't he look a little peculiar? If our children learn the dance steps without learning to hear and to feel the beautiful music of the gospel, they will over time become uncomfortable with the dance and will either quit dancing or, almost as bad, will keep dancing only because of the pressure they feel from others who are dancing around them. The challenge for all of us who seek to teach the gospel is to expand the curriculum beyond just the dance steps. Our children's happiness depends on their ability to hear and love the beautiful music of the gospel. How do we do it? First, we must keep our own lives attuned to the correct spiritual frequency. Back in the olden days, before the digital age, we found our favorite radio station by carefully turning the radio dial until it lined up perfectly with the station's frequency. As we approached the number, we could hear only static. But when we finally made the precise alignment, our favorite music could be heard clearly. In our lives, we have to align with the correct frequency in order to hear the music of the Spirit. When we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost after baptism, we are filled with the heavenly music that accompanies conversion. Our hearts are changed, and we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. But the Spirit will not endure unkindness or pride or envy. If we lose that delicate balance in our lives, the rich harmonies of the gospel can quickly become dissonant and can ultimately be silenced. Alma asked the poignant question, If ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? Parents, if our lives are out of tune with the music of the gospel, we need to tune them up. As President Monson taught us last October, we must ponder the path of our feet. We know how to do it. We must walk the same path that we walked when we first heard the heavenly strains of gospel music. We exercise faith in Christ, repent, and take the sacrament. We feel more strongly the influence of the Holy Ghost, and the music of the gospel begins to play again in our lives. Second, when we can hear the music ourselves, we must try our best to perform it in our homes. It is not something that can be forced or compelled. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood or by virtue of being the dad or the mom 
or the biggest or the loudest. Only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, by love unfeigned, and by kindness. Why would these attributes lead to increasing power and influence in a home? Because they are the attributes that invite the Spirit of the Holy Ghost. They are the attributes that tune our hearts to the music of the gospel. When they are present, the dance steps will be performed more naturally and joyfully by all of the dancers in the family, without the need for threats or intimidation or compulsion. When our children are little, we can sing them the lullaby of love unfeigned. And when they are obstinate and refuse to go to sleep at night, we might need to sing the lullaby of long-suffering. When they are teenagers, we can tune out the cacophony of arguments and threats and instead perform the beautiful music of persuasion and perhaps sing the second verse of the lullaby of long-suffering. Parents can perform in perfect harmony the tandem attributes of gentleness and meekness. We can invite our children to sing along with us in unison as we practice kindness toward a neighbor who is in need. It won't come all at once. As every accomplished musician knows, it takes diligent practice to perform beautiful music. If early efforts at making music seem dissonant and discordant, Remember that dissonance cannot be corrected by criticism. Dissonance in the home is like darkness in a room. It does little good to scold the darkness. We can only displace the darkness by introducing light. So if the basses in your family choir are too loud and overbearing, or if the string section in your family orchestra is a little too shrill or a little bit sharp, or if those impetuous piccolos are out of tune or out of control. Be patient. If you are not hearing the music of the gospel in your home, please remember these two words. Keep practicing. With God's help, the day will come when the music of the gospel will fill your home with unspeakable joy. Even when performed well, the music will not solve all of our problems. There will still be crescendos and decrescendos in our lives, staccatos and legatos. Such is the nature of life on planet Earth. But when we add music to the dance steps, the sometimes complicated rhythms of marriage and family life tend to move toward a harmonious balance. Even our most difficult challenges will add rich, plaintive tones and moving motifs. The doctrines of the priesthood will begin to distill upon our soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost will be our constant companion. And our scepter, a clear reference to power and influence, will be an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And our dominion will be an everlasting dominion. And without compulsory means, it will flow into us forever and ever. May it be so in each of our lives and in each of our homes, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Above the great west door of the renowned Westminster Abbey in London, England, stand the statues of ten Christian martyrs of the 20th century. Included among them is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a brilliant German theologian born in 1906. Bonhoeffer became a vocal critic of the Nazi dictatorship and its treatment of Jews and others. He was imprisoned for his active opposition and finally executed in a concentration camp. Bonhoeffer was a prolific writer, and some of his best-known pieces are letters that sympathetic guards helped him smuggle out of prison, later published as letters and papers from prison. One of those letters was to his niece before her wedding. It included these significant insights. Quote, Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you're a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to His glory and calls into His kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God." Unquote. In what way does marriage between a man and a woman transcend their love for one another and their own happiness to become a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind? In what sense does it come from above, from God? To understand, we have to go back to the beginning. Prophets have revealed that we first existed as intelligences and that we were given form or spirit bodies by God thus becoming His spirit children, sons and daughters of heavenly parents. There came a time in this premortal existence of spirits when, in furtherance of His desire that we could have a privilege to advance like Himself, our Heavenly Father prepared an enabling plan. In the scriptures, it's given various names, including the plan of salvation, the great plan of happiness, and the plan of redemption. The two principal purposes of the plan were explained to Abraham in these words, And there stood one among them that was like unto God, and he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these spirits may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Thanks to our Heavenly Father, we had already become spirit beings. Now He was offering us a path to complete or perfect that being. The addition of the physical element is essential to the fullness of being and glory that God Himself enjoys. If while with God in the premortal spirit world, we would agree to participate in His plan, or in other words, keep our first estate, we would be added upon with a physical body, 
as we came to dwell on the earth that He created for us. If then, in the course of our mortal experience, we chose to do all things whatsoever the Lord our God should command us, we would have kept our second estate. This means that by our choices we would demonstrate to God and to ourselves our commitment and capacity to live His celestial law while outside His presence and in a physical body with all its powers, appetites, and passions. Could we bridle the flesh so that it became the instrument rather than the master of the Spirit? Could we be trusted in time and eternity with godly powers, including the power to create life? Would we individually overcome evil? Those who did would have glory added upon their heads forever and ever, a very significant aspect of that glory being a resurrected, immortal, and glorified physical body. No wonder we shouted for joy at these magnificent possibilities and promises. At least four things are needed for the success of this divine plan. First was the creation of the earth as our dwelling place. Whatever the details of the creation process, we know that it was not accidental but that it was directed by God the Father and implemented by Jesus Christ. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Second is the condition of mortality. Adam and Eve acted for all who had chosen to participate in the Father's great plan of happiness. Their fall created the conditions needed for our physical birth, and for mortal experience and learning outside the presence of God. With the fall came an awareness of good and evil and the God-given power to choose. Finally, the fall brought about physical death, needed to make our time in mortality temporary so that we would not live forever in our sins. Third is redemption from the fall. We see the role of death in our Heavenly Father's plan, but that plan would become void without some way to overcome death in the end, both physical and spiritual. Thus, a Redeemer, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died to atone for Adam and Eve's transgression, thereby providing resurrection and immortality for all. And since none of us will have been perfectly and consistently obedient to the gospel law, His Atonement also redeems us from our own sins on condition of repentance. With the Savior's atoning grace providing forgiveness of sins and sanctification of the soul, we can spiritually be born again and reconciled to God. Our spiritual death, our separation from God, will end. Fourth and finally is the setting for our physical birth and subsequent rebirth into the kingdom of God. For His work to succeed, to exalt us with Himself, God ordained that men and women should marry and give birth to children, thereby creating, in partnership with God, the physical bodies that are key to the test of mortality and essential to eternal glory with Him. He also ordained that parents should establish families and rear their children in light and truth, leading them to a hope in Christ. The Father commands us, Teach these things freely unto your children, saying, 
that inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the spirit which I have made, and so became of dust a living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Holy Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. Knowing why we left the presence of our Heavenly Father and what it takes to return and be exalted with Him, it becomes very clear that nothing relative to our time on earth can be more important than physical birth and spiritual rebirth, the two prerequisites of eternal life. This is, to use the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the office of marriage, the post of responsibility towards mankind that this divine institution from above, from God, occupies. It is the link in the chain of generations both here and hereafter, the order of heaven. A family built on the marriage of a man and woman supplies the best setting for God's plan to thrive the setting for the birth of children who come in purity and innocence from God, and the environment for the learning and preparation they'll need for a successful mortal life and eternal life in the world to come. A critical mass of families built on such marriages is vital for societies to survive and flourish. And that is why communities and nations generally have encouraged and protected marriage and the family as privileged institutions. It has never been just about the love and happiness of adults. The social science case for marriage and for families headed by a married man and woman is compelling. And so we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. But our claims for the role of marriage and family rest not on social science but on the truth that they are God's creation. It is He who in the beginning created Adam and Eve in His image, male and female, and joined them as husband and wife to become one flesh and to multiply and replenish the earth. Each individual carries the divine image, but it is in the matrimonial union of male and female as one that we attain perhaps the most complete meaning of our having been made in the image of God, male and female. Nor we nor any other mortal can alter this divine order of matrimony. It is not a human invention. Such marriage is indeed from above, from God, and is as much a part of the plan of happiness as the fall and the atonement. In the pre-mortal world, Lucifer rebelled against God and His plan and his opposition only grows in intensity. He fights to discourage marriage and the formation of families. And where marriages and families are formed, he does what he can to disrupt them. He attacks everything that is sacred about human sexuality, tearing it from the context of marriage with a seemingly infinite array of immoral thoughts and acts. He seeks to convince men and women, men and women, that marriage and family priorities can be ignored or abandoned 
or at least made subservient to careers, other achievements, and the quest for self-fulfillment and individual autonomy. Certainly, the adversary is pleased when parents neglect to teach and train their children to have faith in Christ and be spiritually born again. Brothers and sisters, many things are good, many are important, but only a few are essential. To declare the fundamental truths relative to marriage and family is not to overlook or diminish the sacrifices and successes of those for whom the ideal is not a present reality. Some of you are denied the blessings of marriage for reasons including a lack of viable prospects, same-sex attraction, physical or mental impairments, or simply a fear of failure that, for the moment at least, overshadows faith. Or you may have married, but that marriage ended, and you are left to manage alone what two together can barely sustain. Some of you who are married cannot bear children despite overwhelming desires and pleading prayers. Even so, everyone has gifts, everyone has talents, everyone can contribute to the unfolding of the divine plan in each generation. Much that is good, much that is essential, even sometimes all that is necessary for now, can be achieved in less-than-ideal circumstances. So many of you are doing your very best. And when you who bear the heaviest burdens of mortality stand up in defense of God's plan to exalt His children, we are all ready to march. With confidence we testify that the Atonement of Jesus Christ has anticipated and in the end will compensate all deprivation and loss for those who turn to Him. No one is predestined to receive less than all that the Father has for His children. One young mother recently confided to me her anxiety about being inadequate in this highest of callings. I felt that the issues that concerned her were small and she needn't worry. She was doing fine. But I knew she only wanted to please God and to honor His trust. I offered words of reassurance, and in my heart I pleaded that God, her Heavenly Father, would buoy her up with His love and the witness of His approval as she is about His work. And that is my prayer for all of us today. May each of us find approval in His sight. May marriages flourish and families prosper. And whether our lot is a fullness of these blessings in mortality or not, may the Lord's grace bring happiness now and faith in sure promises to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.